The following podcast contains descriptions of events that may be too disturbing for younger listeners. Discretion is advised. Hello, divers. Welcome to another installment of Mysteries of the Deep. I'm Tom Feeney, podcaster and purveyor of pop culture propaganda, searching beneath the surface of what seems to be the ordinary, the mundane, the pedestrian. This week, Mysteries of the Deep dives into what is likely the most disturbing tragedy ever to occur during the production of a major motion picture up until very recently. We ask the question, what really happened on the set of Twilight Zone, the movie? not hyperbole to state that the original Twilight Zone television series was one of the most influential programs ever aired. From the iconic theme song to the terse intensity of host Rod Serling's narration, the Twilight Zone set the bar for quality television. For those who might be unfamiliar, if that's possible, the Twilight Zone was an anthology series with a different story and different cast each episode. The weekly half-hour show leaned heavily into tales of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Rod Serling not only created the show, but wrote many of the episodes. He used fantastical elements like time travel, the supernatural, and alien encounters to shed light on important subject matters, both real and existential. The success of the show, which ran for five seasons on CBS beginning in 1959, spawned a litany of lookalikes, including The Outer Limits, which focused more on science fiction stories, the more humanistic One Step Beyond, and the more horror-themed Thriller. No, not that one. That one was hosted by the one and only Boris Karloff. After The Twilight Zone ended its five-season run in 1964, Rod Serling went on to write other television and movie scripts, most notably the political thriller Seven Days in May, as well as co-writing the first Planet of the Apes film. By the end of the 1960s, however, Serling would return to the genre that made him famous with the creation of another anthology series, Night Gallery. Aside from its macabre content, Night Gallery is also recognized for giving a brand new director his first professional job, 23-year-old Steven Spielberg, who almost got fired even before he got to yell action. The star of the segment Spielberg was going to direct starred one of Hollywood's most famous and infamous stars, Mommy Dearest's Joan Crawford. After learning that she would be directed by a first-timer, she demanded he be replaced by someone with more experience. Luckily, she was talked out of it by then-Universal Studios president Sid Sheinberg. As it turned out, Crawford and Spielberg worked very well together and became close friends all the way up until Crawford's death in 1977. 
Miss Joan Crawford, Ossie Davis, Richard Kiley, Roddy McDowell, and Barry Sullivan, starring in the Night Gallery. I'm Rod Serling. I would like to invite you to join me for the telling of three stories represented in this gallery by these paintings to be displayed here for the first time. Each is a collector's item in its own way, not because of any special artistic quality, but because each captures on a canvas, suspends in time and space, a frozen moment in a nightmare. My abiding concern, Doctor, and my singular preoccupation is myself. 11 hours of 12, fewer or more, it makes no difference. I want to see something. Trees, concrete, buildings, grass, airplanes, colors! Join me for the unveiling at the Night Gallery. Steven Spielberg went on to direct some other stuff, including an episode of Marcus Welby, M.D., I think. Oh, and he's also involved in the topic of this episode. Well, now that we've established a direct connection between Steven Spielberg and Rod Serling, let's fast forward to 1982. Production had begun on Twilight Zone, the movie. The film was meant to be something of a love letter to the series. It would include four separate segments, each telling a different story based on a classic Twilight Zone episode. Spielberg was not only the producer of the film, but also directed one of the segments. It was a rather inoffensive remake of the episode Kick the Can, where a group of elderly residents in a retirement home are given a chance to become children again. John Landis, American Werewolf in London. Steven Spielberg, E.T. Joe Dante, The Howling. George Miller, Mad Max. These acclaimed directors take you to another dimension. journey into a wondrous land whose only boundaries are your imagination. Next stop, The Twilight Zone. There was another segment, however, that deserves classification as a tragedy. It was a reworking of the classic episode, Equality of Mercy, where a battle-weary American soldier fighting in World War II suddenly finds himself fighting for the Japanese army instead of against them. The experience helps him regain his humanity and empathy for others. In the movie version, an anti-Semitic bigot played by actor Vic Morrow gets drunk at a bar and throws around racist insults because he was passed over for a promotion at work. When he leaves the bar, the man finds himself bounced around in time as he's transported to Nazi Germany where he is chased and shot. He then finds himself in 1950s Alabama, where he's about to be lynched, and then appears in war-torn Vietnam, being shot at by American soldiers. It ends when he finds himself back in Nazi Germany, being loaded onto a freight car, bound for a concentration camp. The segment was effective, if a little heavy-handed. There was a scene that was shot 
and was intended to be used in the film. A scene where Vic Morrow's character tries to save two young Vietnamese children while he's running through the jungle for his life. The footage was never used, for reasons that will become obvious. The segment was helmed by director John Landis. By the time Twilight Zone came around, Landis was a hot property, coming off directing a string of hit movies like National Lampoon's Animal House, The Blues Brothers, and An American Werewolf in London. At around 2.30 a.m. on July 23, 1982, John Landis was preparing to film the complicated scene where the 53-year-old Morrow carries the two children to safety across a body of water while being chased by an army helicopter. Massive explosions were going off around them. An actual Vietnam War veteran was piloting the helicopter, which was hovering very close to where Morrow and the children were crossing the water. According to reports, what happened next occurred over the space of only a few seconds. The helicopter pilot was turning the aircraft around 180 degrees when an explosion detonated underneath the copter's tail rotor. The tail section came apart and sent the helicopter into a spin, crashing into the water. Six-year-old Renee Chen was crushed by the helicopter. Both Vic Morrow and seven-year-old Micah Din Lei were decapitated by the helicopter's main rotor. The scene for a movie version of Twilight Zone attempted to recreate the terror and the carnage of the hell that was Vietnam. And then, as the crew watched in horror early this morning, the make-believe dissolved and actor Vic Morrow and two Vietnamese children were killed. As David Dow reports, the Twilight Zone became a nightmare. The location was a simulated jungle in Vietnam, site of a battle scene for a movie version of the old Twilight Zone television series. But it became the scene of a real-life tragedy. A helicopter with six men aboard maneuvered 30 feet off the ground to film the action. Suddenly, it lost its tail rotor and crashed into actor Vic Morrow and two young Vietnamese children he was carrying. They were killed instantly. There's speculation that debris from explosives being used in the scene may have struck the helicopter. The six crewmen were treated at a nearby hospital for mostly minor injuries. For Morrow, 51, it was the end of a career that began with a tough guy role in the 1955 movie Blackboard Jungle. Hey, don't you know his name, Jerk? Excuse me, Mr. Jerk. He was often a tough guy as he rose to fame in the 1960s television series Combat. Yeah. And though battle scenes and violence formed much of his acting career, they belied the real Vic Morrow, according to his co-star in Combat. You know, Vic hated guns. I asked him to uh, go sk skeet shooting with me one day. He said he couldn't, he couldn't stand to kill Clay. Morrow well, never became one of Hollywood's big stars, but he was widely respected as a solid character actor, and he almost finished one more role. This was to have been his last scene in Twilight Zone. David Dow, CBS News, Valencia, California. John Landis and four other men working on the film 
including the special effects coordinator and the helicopter pilot, were charged with involuntary manslaughter. It was the first time in motion picture history a director faced criminal charges for actions taken while making a movie. During the subsequent trial, defense attorneys maintained the crash was clearly an accident that no one could have predicted. The prosecution claimed Landis and his crew had been criminally reckless. Not only that, but they violated laws regarding child actors, including regulations about their working conditions and hours. The trial lasted 10 months, and in 1987, a jury acquitted all five defendants. The victims' families all filed lawsuits against Landis, Warner Brothers, and Twilight Zone co-director and producer Steven Spielberg. They were all settled for undisclosed amounts. In his 2010 biography, Spielberg said, quote, No movie is worth dying for. I think people are standing up much more now than ever before to producers and directors who ask too much. If something isn't safe, it's the right and responsibility of every actor or crew member to yell, cut, end quote. In the aftermath of the tragedy, the Directors Guild of America instituted stricter enforcements for safety violations, while the Screen Actors Guild mandated that the actors be allowed to step away from filming should they not feel safe on set. The state of California also got involved. Their Department of Forestry and Fire Protection created its Motion Picture and Entertainment Safety Program, acting as a liaison between the California Fire Service and the entertainment industry. Sadly, the protections enacted haven't entirely prevented further tragedies. A 2016 study done by the Associated Press, which analyzed data from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, showed that since 1990, at least 43 people have died on TV and movie sets in the U.S. More than 150 people have been left with life-altering injuries. A particularly egregious example occurred last October on the set of the Western film Rust. A supposedly unloaded Colt 45 was handed to the film star and producer Alec Baldwin. The actor was rehearsing a scene where he draws the weapon and fires at the camera. The weapon discharged a live round. Cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed, and the film's writer-director Joel Souza was injured. As of this recording, the investigation into the incident is still ongoing. No one has yet been charged with a crime. Twilight Zone the Movie is available to rent on Prime Video, Apple TV, and Vudu for $2.99. As said before, no footage of the tragic accident was used in the final cut of the movie. Landis' career would continue on despite the tarnish on his reputation. He would go on to direct several hit movies, including Three Amigos and Coming to America. If you're interested in learning more about the Twilight Zone tragedy, there is a terrific book detailing the events leading up to the accident, an in-depth account of what happened and the subsequent trial. It's called Outrageous Conduct, Art, Ego, and the Twilight Zone Case by Stephen Farber. It's not an easy book to find, but worth tracking down.
Thanks for listening. If this is the first time you've heard this podcast, check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss a single one. And we want to hear from you. Drop us a line at the deep dive podcast at gmail.com or on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter feeds. You can find links to those on our Linktree site, the Deep Dive Podcast by Automaton. And don't forget to check out our official website, thedeepdivepodcast.com. All clips used in this podcast are meant for educational purposes only and not to infringe on existing copyrights. Mysteries of the Deep is a production of Automaton Studios.